Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton. This week, the church has been talking a lot about estates ministry of late. Madeline Davies has visited the Biker Wall estate in Newcastle, where a church is thinking imaginatively about mission. And we hear from three of our 21 for 21 young interfaith champions about peacemaking and bridge building. Don't forget, if you don't subscribe to the Church Times, try 10 issues for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. So Madeline, this week's cover feature is about your visit to the Biker Wall Estate in Newcastle. Biker, I think, is known to people of our sort of generation for a... um, popular tv show yes. back in the 90s yeah i did realize my age when it went up to biker as i referenced the show and apparently that has very little little uh, oh, really? <laughs> currency these days it was quite a while ago now when anton deck first found fame <laughs> yes um but not maybe a cultural touchstone anymore that's a shame <laughs> And what prompted this feature? What prompted you to get on the train to Newcastle? So I was listening into the estates evangelism debate at Synod in February, and I was really um, struck by a number of speeches. I thought it was a really good debate, but there was one from um, Izzy McDonald Booth. He's um, a representative from Newcastle Diocese, and she talked about um, the biker estate and how um, they'd pitched this tent in this in the middle of this gutted nave of a parish church because they needed a space to meet. And there are a number of um, young people in the sort of orbit of the church who'd kind of really been really persistent and sort of stayed part of the community. Um, and they needed a space um, in which to meet um, and which to worship. And so they had put up this this tent in the nave. And I just thought that was a really um, intriguing image. Um, and I was also really struck by um, her sort of talking about the, the church's work with young people um, and sort of how um, interested they'd been. And there was this message that one of the young people had said, which was, please don't leave us. And this sense that the church was still present where um, perhaps a lot of other things had departed. And what did you find when you got there? So I met um, the Reverend Phil Medley, who is the vicar of St Michael with St Lawrence in Biker. Um, he's been there for a number of years now. Um, so we met, um, had a walk around the estate, um, and he told me a bit about um, his life there, the community there, and I guess their plans for the church. So that tent is hopefully temporary in that they've got this big fundraising pitch, and they want to bring the building back um, back to life, really. Um, it is um, sort of possible to meet inside. Obviously, they've got the tent, but there's a lot of work that needs to happen. I think they need to raise about a quarter a million pounds um, which Izzy is involved in in fundraising as I understand it and we really chatted about um, I guess life on the estate and and where he feels that the church um, belongs um, he lives on the estate as do a number of other um, sort of church workers um, and I met um, the church warden Jackie Gilchrist um, who's lived on the estate since the 80s um, she talked um, about running for the council in the area um, and, and also kind of her vision for the church um, so it was just um, thought really important to sort of actually visit in person and walk around and and get a sense rather than sort of trying to do something from London. I got the sense from the feature that um, there are a lot of challenges they talk about becoming well acquainted with the local police because because of things that happen but also real affection for the estate so this isn't necessarily um, about grinning and bearing this kind of ministry. No, well, I think kind of Philip North talked about that before, that we want to sort of move away from this idea that um, you're kind of some kind of hair-shirted martyr if you serve on an estate. There was definitely no sense of that, um, both Phil and um, the others I spoke to, including um, Dave Johnson, the youth worker, um, really loved life on the estate. Um, I guess the point they were making was that there were um, challenges as well. One of the things that you're struck by when you come out of the Biker Metro is that the notice board for the estate has a 
lot of information about antisocial behaviour, about crime, about who you can contact um, if you're the victim of crime. Um, so that was kind of quite obvious, I guess, just from the moment I stepped off um, into the estate. Um, and they talked a bit about um, the challenges of um, working with young people there. So sometimes antisocial behaviour affects their work as well. So sort of just after I left, um, there's a youth work dedicated bus which goes on tour and it'd come to Biker. And Dave described how sort of a really small number of um, young people had basically hijacked the session and kind of harassed families and, and made it really difficult. Um, so I guess they were just trying to be honest uh, about the fact that um, it's not always easy what they're trying to do. Mm. And you write about how keeping churches present in areas such as Biker is going to take a big sacrifice for the church, or that's what Canon Stephen Herbert told you. Yeah, and it kind of echoes um, Philip North's speech to the Synod Evangelism debate, where he basically said to people, don't vote in favour of this motion unless you mean it, because actually um, keeping um, clergy present in estates and buildings um, is going to cost the rest of the church. Um, and if you sort of aren't willing to put your money where your mouth is, don't vote for the motion. Um, it was kind of really nice to hear from the clergy that they were actually really positive about the Diocese of Newcastle. Phil said, you know, it would have been easy to close the church down. I think at one point there was really only a handful of people still going. But sort of credit to the diocese, they, they didn't withdraw um, funding for clergy there. And now I think there's about 30 or 40 people on a Sunday. Um, so he still describes it as quite a fragile community. But they both kind of paid tribute to the diocese for not pulling back where I think Philip North would say many dioceses did. You also spoke to Alicia, one of the young people. Yes, yeah, so she was somebody who um, both Phil and Dave Johnson, the youth worker, um, talked about um, a lot. She um, is a young woman who um, got involved um, really through um, Dave and his wife Jen um, and going to Scripture Union camps um, and recently got baptised and also preached um, on Mother's Day. Um, she did a, what was described as a fantastic um, sermon. So I really wanted to speak to her about how she'd gone from quite um, kind of unchurched background into the point where she was actually sort of preaching um, at the age of 20 to, to the entire church. Um, and I guess sort of the point that she was making was, A, she sort of said, you know, the difference is Jesus. Um, but B, um, I think sort of the presence of Dave and Jen living on the estate as well as working there, being out and about and just being a really consistent presence for the young people. And that's what um, really struck me. I think sometimes when we hear about youth group, we um, we sort of hear about these um, very large um, youth ministries or youth groups um, talking about kind of having a vanguard of them um, and this was really saying actually we're a consistent presence on the estate not all of those young people are going to come to church on Sunday but we're there for them um, Jackie talked about being a listening ear um, including for young people who perhaps many other agencies have given up on um, so something I heard about was um, school exclusions and the fact that the schools were deemed to sort of wash their hands of some young people. And Jackie was really saying sort of nobody gets turned away at St Michael's. So um, we're, we're here for young people where perhaps other people aren't. And um, Alicia said that as well. She was really open about the fact that it, it can be really hard to take young people on that journey from just kind of hanging out to um, being part of the worshipping life of the community. But she just talked about being there for them, um, really, um, being persistent and even through um, some quite kind of challenging behaviour sometimes, not giving up. And Dave talked about the fact that even if the funding were to dry up, so 
his post is actually funded by um, the parishes in the area. It's not a diocesan post. Um, he was saying, even if we had a funding challenge, you know, me and Jen will still be on the estate, we'll still live here, we'll still see people. And so I was really struck, I think, by that commitment to the long term where so often I think sort of projects are funded for a limited amount of time and then people just feel abandoned. You also mentioned in the piece that Sunday attendance isn't always possible for everyone at this church. Um, yes. And what this means for church growth and how it's captured by statistics that we have. Yeah, so a couple of things. Um, firstly, because of people's working lives, they might be working multiple jobs, they might be cleaning on a Sunday, they might actually um, be doing two jobs um, during the weekends. Um, Phil was saying that, that those people wouldn't always be captured in those kind of stun- Sunday statistics, but they are very much part of the worshipping life of the church. They might sort of be involved in mid- midweek activities or he said you know even sometimes people that can't come on a Sunday still help to clean the church so that really made me think about um, what can be missed if we just look at crude statistics um, another point that was made by Canon Stephen um, Herbert who is um, in a neighbouring parish he was talking about the fact that a community centre um, which is sort of now shares a building with his church it really taken years um, to see sort of congregational growth from some of the community activities so he was saying if we kind of expect immediate results from some of our work that may not be sort of realistic it's taken a long time um, or a number of years to see growth come about and if we look for sort of immediate results we can miss that. So this means not only clergy but dioceses have to commit for the long haul? Yeah, and um, he was sort of talking about a church that maybe expects quick results. Um, but actually, if, um, he was saying sort of churches in the area were in decline. Now two of them are growing, two of them are kind of a sustainable level. But that has taken time and obviously patience. And it seems as if the diocese has been willing to wait for that growth. And just finally, you mentioned towards the end of the piece that you've been going through the Church Times archive and, and finding out quite a bit about... Biker. Yeah, so, so the two things that struck me were there's always kind of be, been this concern, it seems, that by cannot be abandoned by the church. And so there were a couple of examples of clergy saying, you know, we must fund churches in this area. It's, it's so densely populated. There are so many people that need the church. We must sort of put our, our money where our mouth is. Um, and secondly, um, sadly, I guess, the reality of deprivation in the area. So looking back to 1932, uh, one of Phil Medley's predecessors, the Reverend F. Baker, was on a committee of clerics um, who were appointed to examine unemployment and the effect of the means test in the area. And some of the things that they were finding around poverty, particularly food poverty um, and mothers and children, um, still seem very pertinent today. Um, So I visited a community centre that was originally part of um, the church um, where they were running a food cafe with um, sort of food donated from Fair Share in the West End Food Bank and and the women there were talking about poverty in the area and hidden poverty. And I guess it just struck me that some of the the challenges in Biker, so I think about half of children in in the parish live in poverty, are not new. And I was sort of pleased to see that um, they're starting to get involved in community organising as well. So Phil Medley was saying, um, even if people feel a bit disempowered or um, perhaps alienated by party politics, um, community organising through citizens has given them a way to take action. Last year, the Church Times teamed up with Jewish News, British Muslim TV and Coexist House to launch 21 for 21. Its aim was to find 21 interfaith ambassadors under the age of 40, seven Christian, seven Jewish and seven Muslim. At Lambeth Palace last week, the 21 gathered to receive trophies along with three highly commended entrants. 
You can read more about the event in this week's paper and at greater length on our website. At the end of the evening, three of them spoke briefly about why they do interfaith work. They were Georgia May, Programme Director of the Rose Castle Foundation, Philip Rosenberg, Director of Public Affairs at the Board of Deputies of British Jews, and Arzu Ahmed, Director of the Centre for Islam and Medicine. Their short talks follow and make for inspiring listening. So good evening, my name is Georgia May and I'm the Programme Director for the Rose Castle Foundation, an international centre for peace and reconciliation. We run residential programmes that welcome those from both sides of the divide to live and learn together, inviting communities to reimagine what collaboration could look like if we all learned how to disagree well. It is a real honour to be here with you this evening and wonderful to see the diversity represented here within each faith, as well as across our religious traditions. It is such an encouragement to learn about the different approaches and passions that we each bring into this work. And gathering together in this way is a welcome reminder that in our commitment to bring people of different faiths together, there is also the opportunity to heal divisions within our own faith communities as well. I must admit that I come from a conservative evangelical community that often struggles to understand interfaith work. Yet my own experience of interfaith engagement has been a deepening of my faith that has brought to life what is a core message of the Christian faith. In one of the New Testament letters to the Corinthians, we read, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Every Christian is called to be an ambassador of Christ and a minister of reconciliation. This opens up a very giving space where we are not responsible for God's mission of reconciliation. Yet we are invited to play a critical role in demonstrating the deep love that God has for all people. A love so deep that it goes far beyond the surface level of tolerating difference. It is a love that is willing to sacrificially struggle together in a way that brings us closer through understanding rather than letting us become divided through ignorance. My journey into interfaith work has come from questioning what it really looks like to bring people from the most opposing viewpoints into the same space, a space where disagreement must have its place. And it is within that space that my faith finds even greater depth, deeper purpose, and ultimately a joy that is found when I realise that our calling as Christians is to see the face of God in every person. Often people think that interfaith work operates on distant shores, far from the community heartbeats of our traditions. Yet something extraordinary happens when we gather like we are this evening, primarily here because of our faith, able to draw on the depths of our traditions, and indeed in living out our beliefs in the presence of one another, we find that there is at least one thing we all share, a faith-based toolkit that grows very naturally from deep within, equipping us to be reconciling leaders within our communities. So thank you to the organisers for bringing us together I am based up in Cumbria where it's quite isolated, so it's really special to be reminded that there's many others working in this interfaith field as well. So thank you very much. Next up, Philip Rosenberg. Friends, teachers, my rabbi Joseph Dweck, my boss, the Board of Deputies President Marie van der Zyl, and my fiance, Francis Averese. We live in a world which is more connected than ever before. In a touch of our button on our smartphones, we can speak easily and cheaply to people on the other side of the world. 
And yet, we also live in a world which is incredibly polarised and divided, often with violent consequences. In the last few months alone, we have seen worshippers slaughtered just for being religious and practising their faith, at synagogues in the United States, at mosques in New Zealand, and at churches in Sri Lanka. We have a president in the White House who has stoked fears about Muslims. We have a leader of the opposition in the UK who is standing by, not standing up to anti-Semitism. Across Europe, populist far-right parties have gained ground, and we have seen a rise in hate crime. So many people around us are being more insular, more convinced by their own narrow perspectives and unwilling or unable to speak to those of a different faith, ethnicity, or even just a different opinion. That is why these awards are so important. They recognise people who are pushing back against these poisonous tendencies and breaking down barriers and building bridges instead. Our colleagues who have been recognised here today are fighting hate crime. They're supporting refugees. They're finding ways to create constructive conversations about difficult topics like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. They're supporting better religious education. And they're turning strangers into friends. Too often in our own communities, interfaith activists are treated like eccentrics, as wishy-washy people of compromise. But really, your nominees are performing a vital and godly mission. They're preserving their own identities whilst taking a far-sighted view about the fact that isolationism and a winner-takes-all attitude means for a much more dangerous world, while a win-win and inclusive approach means a better world for all of us. It can sometimes feel lonely to be a champion for diversity in an insular world, which is why the Jewish News, British Muslim TV and the Church Times holding us up and bringing us together means a great deal to us all. Thank you for this wonderful honour and this wonderful opportunity. Finally, I'm delighted to invite to say a few words to you, Azu Ahmed. Last Friday, I attended a deeply moving funeral service for a Christian friend in a chapel in the Lake District. I had met Irene on the train 10 years ago as a complete stranger. We bonded over a chat about faith and meaning in life. That was the only time we had ever met. But I was so grateful to her family for reaching out to me and inviting me to be there to give her a send-off. The week before, I was generously welcomed into the home of a rabbi friend for a lively Shabbat dinner filled with song and prayers and lots and lots of food. I think it was 10 courses um, with his family and friends. These are examples of the beautiful hospitality that comes with interfaith work, which so many of us have experienced through the work that we do. But it was, it was a few weeks ago, here in Lambeth Palace, in fact, in this particular room, when I took part in a three-day interfaith workshop on difficult conversations with a small group of interfaith leaders, that I really felt the power of building and nurturing interfaith relationships. Over the course of the three-day workshop, the safety and trust which had been created in this space that we shared and the transformative impact it had on helping us feel empowered, whilst also experiencing the fragility of speaking difficult words with incredible honesty, was both humbling and challenging. There were tears, there was frustration, there was silence, and there was a deep sense of gratitude 
It is the possibility and potential of moments like these in my interfaith encounters which give life to the Quranic verse which is often used to support interfaith initiatives. It calls on humanity. We have created you into nations and tribes so that you may know one another. That mutual knowledge is built on a plurality of differences and characterized by trust and respect. It speaks of our deep and constant need for one another. And that's what my encounters with people of other faiths teach me every single time. This is a really wonderful initiative and I feel privileged and honored to be in the company of everyone here who is striving to form meaningful relationships that build not just upon our commonalities, but our deep differences through the interfaith work that everyone here is doing. So thank you so much to the organizers of British Muslim TV, the Church Times and Jewish News, and also Lambeth Palace for welcoming us here this evening. I look forward to all of the wonderful things that we're all gonna do together from here. So thank you so much again. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.